1: Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Uh, you know, actually, today's a special day. Not only are we back in the office, uh, we've got a special guest. So I'd like to introduce Richard Toombs, Business Development Specialist here at AES Drilling Fluids. Richard, how you doing today, buddy? I'm
2: doing well, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, this is my podcasting debut apparently so very nice the flow line is having me in for this one i appreciate it
1: well you know it was uh matt and i had a long discussion about this and then and we figured we'd give you a shot at the big league so we're pretty excited matt how you <laughs> no doing pressure. today?
0: Uh, not too bad a little nervous about what ricky's gonna say but mm. otherwise i'm good <laughs> try not to embarrass you matt yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well
1: for all the listeners out there, i'm sure you could tell we uh we have a we're pretty unique here in the sense that we like to we like to bug each other and have a good time not only do we work hard we certainly give a hard time to all our fellow employees but uh it's all smiles and laughs so uh but the purpose to have ricky on today um is is you know we've been in well i say we you guys have been heavily involved recently with uh you know doing a bunch of technical writing getting involved with a a d e and so um Ricky's been part, uh, he's part author of of a paper that hasn't yet been published. Um, and, uh, Matt, I'll let you talk a little bit more about that, but, um, you were heavily involved with this, with this paper, um, even involved with the operations, a lot of the R and D that went into, you know, coming up with what we have here to present. So, um, Matt, before we get going, I'll let you kind of talk a little bit about the paper itself, uh, where AEDe is, and kind of where we position ourselves right now within the you know the whole conference world of things.
0: So, uh, unfortunately, the 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 AED Fluids Technical Conference and Exhibition, which happens every other year, was canceled this year just by way of initially, um, you know, it was planned to ha- happen in April, and then everything happened. And uh, it sort of became uncertain exactly when we could reschedule, and particularly with the price of oil and so many unknowns, it was when in the fall would we be able to do this? Would we be able to do this? Um, and so ultimately, it was decided that they would cancel the conference. And you know that's unfortunate for a number of reasons. It's something I really look forward to. Um, AES had a, a number of papers uh, that will be published on the AED website soon, um, and. At the time this goes out, we assume it will, be, it, it will be up at aade.org if you go to Technical Papers. They have papers from every conference for free, the Fluids Conference, which happens every other year, and then the years in between, the Drilling Conference. Um, but we've, uh, at least with my time at AES, we've always been big supporters of, of the AAD because we really feel like they do some great work promoting the industry. They're very inclusive. They uh, promote a lot of things with students, as far as scholarships and uh, just encouraging the industry to grow in the right direction. Um, and a lot of people that have mentored me have always been very supportive of the AED for those reasons. And so, um, as they retire, I hope to you know carry on some of that. Um, but Ricky was, is actually the the presenting author for this paper, uh, and you know another unfortunate thing we were trying to get everybody who. It was scheduled as a presenting author a chance to, you know, get in front of a big group and shake off those nerves and they get the chance to talk about what they know. Um, and uh, so we thought, you know, it'd be pretty great if we took advantage of the podcast uh, to give everybody a chance to talk a little about their paper. And, and if you're interested, maybe uh, you could read a little bit more about it once, once they're up on the AAD website.
1: Excellent. No, thanks for that. And and certainly uh, one thing I do want to touch on before we get going is, uh, Ricky, why don't you go ahead and tell a little bit uh, about your journey in oil and gas? Um, give the listeners a little bit of context, actually, who's sitting here, because you've got some extensive experience and uh, I think it'd be important to, you know, kind of highlight that.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I, I started out, this is, I think, my yeah, I went to mud School in 2011. So this is my ninth year in the industry. Um, and I, I got kicked off working in, um, in Southern California, actually. Okay. Nice. And so out there, I kind of had the the unique experience kind of just by chance, um, working with some, some interesting fluids at the time. And and they happen to be open hole gravel pack wells, open hole completions, obviously. So got to see some unique fluids, got to get some good experience. Um, did that for about, three years or so, and then, uh, moved into our technical team instead of previous employer, of course. And, and so, um, got to then get some more global experience, got to see some of those same, uh, open hole completions done in West Africa and the Middle East and, um, and various places really. And so got to garner a lot of good experience with that. Um, and then since joining AES, I've, uh, I've Kind of used some of that experience along with just running mud in general to uh, to kind of help out over here, and so
1: nice. And you and Matt yeah. worked together at a previous employee?
2: We did, yeah. yeah. So I worked for Matt for a couple of years um, under that tech service group, and so and then he quit. <laughs> I quit right because of Matt. Yeah, right? and then I I, I I took another role um, working in deep water Gulf of Mexico. Very um, cool project engineering over there. So
1: yeah. So what uh, does the does the does the open hole completion stuff? Is that very interesting to you from a technicals perspective? Yeah, it
2: really is. I mean, you know, it's obviously all centered around the formation damage concepts and things like that. So um, you know, I through that again, I, I had three or four years of of experience as a mud engineer and kind of got thrown into understanding a lot of these broad and deep concepts right and mm-hmm. so um it was it was at least for me a lot of sink or swim start working twice as hard because i'm i'm working around a lot of you know really smart people and i gotta sure figure this stuff out and so it was through that that kind of uh that experience that I gained, um, that kind of propelled me into, to where I'm at now. And so,
1: right. um, And, and that's, you know, it's, it's interesting because, and Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of these techniques are somewhat, um, they're, they're quite old and, you know, due to unconventionals, not very many people have a good understanding of this kind of stuff. Is that right?
0: Well, I would say just in general. Um, so, uh, I guess just, just a little bit of background. So the title of the paper is Horizontal Open Hole Completion Techniques Revitalized Fields on the Texas Gulf Coast. Um, and so these open hole completion techniques, part of the paper is this stuff's being used on land. It actually started on land. And then it became you know it was f- fairly uh, high-tech stuff in the 90s, moving to offshore, deep water, more extreme environments, because that's where the really prolific wells were. Um, where you needed sand control, where the formations were unconsolidated and you needed some way to produce oil back without the oil-carrying sand back with it. Um, And so, uh, I I mean, I think Ricky and my experience has been that uh, even in those big-time deep water projects, you spent a lot of time with the customer explaining what you were doing and why you were doing it. Um, You had a much larger say in operations than just, uh, you know, drilling a hole. Um, if you told them that they had to control drill at 30 feet an hour, they would do it. Um, and it was because there was so much uncertainty, so much unknown, particularly the way operations went, if you'd just done case hole, um, And then unconventionals, of course on land or even, you know, conventional vertical wells where you perforate. Um, there's just not much background to go around. And, and Ricky, why don't you expand on that?
2: Yeah, no, exactly. There's, it's, um, you know, a lot of times at least in my experience you know you 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 go you get with your the engineering team in these deep water applications and a lot of them um, they've got their own specific completion engineering team and you've got a whole another you know regular drilling engineering team whereas on land you've got typically one you know one drilling engineer and he's mm-hmm. probably looking over a couple different rigs maybe and, yeah. and so there's a lot of focus there's a lot more obviously funding that goes into these deep water projects you know when you're talking at Orders of magnitude more production right. um, is at stake, right? So when it comes to these open hole completions, um, y- you know, getting things right, mitigating all the risks, uh, which is what a lot of the paper goes goes into, and we can get into some of that as well. Um, sure. All those details really become magnified, right? And so. Um, you know all, all formation water analysis crude compatibility all those things are tested to the dot right and and you want to make sure all that stuff is, is done right because you've got you're working with a, a rig rate that's you know seven hundred fifty thousand million dollars a day yeah if you get something wrong you need to work it over it's very expensive so right kind of T- tying that back into the paper, that's really uh, you know the high level view is is trying to what we what we ended up doing is you know of course we had this 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 opportunity for a customer on on land that was going to drill one of these wells and of course uh, you know we don't have as much information about that particular field in terms of some of the things you typically get right. offshore um, crude samples some core analysis some other things right <laughs> yeah core material I mean- core material yeah so. Um what we do is we, we basically wanted to wrote a paper about that kind of mitigating some of those risks okay. under that low cost environment right so
1: Gotcha no that's that's exciting stuff so why don't we go ahead and uh, I mean you can kind of walk through it starting off with you know the purpose and and how it kind of came about and then yeah we can just kind of talk through it and and you know this is something that's out of my uh, normal scope of work so i may have questions just uh you know pure curiosity but uh, i'll let you kind of take the reins sure. on it and, and we'll walk through it and matt of course feel free to chime in and and yeah let's get
2: going on yeah, this matt correct me as i <laughs> as we get through this. oh ricky don't All downplay good. yourself but. Uh, no no so um, yeah no i mean kind of as matt already alluded to so a lot of these wells um you know they started drilling these land wells back in the 20s and 30s right and they were extremely prolific they were untapped um and you know they were largely vertical wells. That okay, were, at the time that's what the technology where we were at and what we could drill at the uh, you know with with the rigs and,
0: and what tools were available. Right. So
1: right and pretty shallow, right? These wells relatively
0: or? shallow. I, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, you're talking about some of those were three or four thousand feet TVD, and in fact, in fact, these the horizontals are about six thousand feet TVD. I mean,
1: yeah, not very you're, much.
0: You're building an angle real shallow, which means you have. Really unconsolidated formations, even trying to push off.
2: Gotcha,
1: gotcha. Okay, yeah. Sorry, but
2: yeah, no. So, so as that kind of as some of the technology improved, I mean, you know, people think of you know the like gravel packing and sand control as a as a relatively new thing, but I think when you when you dig back into literature, you can see that this stuff happened as early as the '40s. So, I think the first gravel pack might have been done in California. In fact, it was. Most of the literature I see is is uh, a lot of those wells were gravel packed as, as early as. 46 48 somewhere in there so
1: Hmm. been around for a while it took a
2: while um the the you know the technology matured um became more inexpensive again a lot of these things that um they brought to offshore to to increase you know increase their chances of getting you know maximizing their production they began to adopt um on land and so um what ended up happening is of course as these things um as that technology kind of got more more and more inexpensive um open hole completions you know started taking taking uh taking foot i guess in 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 land so okay so yeah that's that's basically what um kind of how we lay out the paper the first part of it is the history of open hole gravel packs um and then when of course we get into reservoir drilling fluids their design their concept um and then we um we compare kind of the the limitations um that we see with land versus offshore kind of what those what those two different drilling environments kind of bear for us so
1: can you kind of like describe some of the differences that we might experience
2: yeah so when we talk about you know some of the obvious ones are when you're working on an offshore you know for a drill drill strip for example right you've got unbelievable amount of volume to drill with um you know one of the biggest biggest things about reservoir drilling fluids and these open hole completions are you know you want to minimize your damage to formation and a big part of that is in, is when you get drill solids included into that fluid and offshore when you're working with you know 25 30 30 000 foot wells that have these big riser volumes you've got you know, six thousand barrels of circulating volume. As you drill a fifteen hundred or two thousand foot, eight and a half inch hole, you're you're not getting much drill solids in that system, right? When you're talking about a land application, much smaller volumes, you know, anywhere from seven hundred to a thousand barrels. You're comparatively that that drill solids accumulation gets up much higher. So you've got to do things like dump and dilute, right? Where you makes sense. You minimize that amount. So a lot more cycling. Now, conversely. There's still those same risks that on offshore where, you know, you're doing a lot of fluid swaps, you're moving stuff around. You've got to pay attention um, just as closely, especially with um, something like a, a reservoir drilling fluid. So
1: Makes sense. So logistically, obviously, there's there's quite a few differences. Subsurface-wise, is the technology relatively the same? or
0: It is. I, I mean, I would say a lot of the stuff is – it's just like smaller – smaller versions of it, uh, on land and, and older, uh, you know, this is, this is the second or third generation versus what they're doing today. Um, And, and, you know, one of the things I'd like to point out that I, that I do like about this paper is I think that understanding the history of where things come from really gives you insight into the way things work. Um, and that was a big part of the paper was just, Hey, back in the forties they would gravel pack, water wells or even oil wells they discovered that if they just dumped sand behind casing it minimized the amount of sand they produced it acted as a filter um or behind a slotted liner i mean um and then somebody you know they take that to the offshore environment where they're like well what if we pump the sand as a fluid and it filters out on a screen um and so some of that evolution is is kind of tracked and um Maybe, maybe now would be a good time, Ricky, anything that you observed through that literature survey and, and going through that, that struck you or some refreshed some memories? Yeah, I
2: mean, a lot of it is, you, like you said, you see how that technology evolved and you see some of the same things that we're still doing today that was, that that ended up being successful back back in the day when this was, this was attempted, right? And so, you know, there were some things like, uh, you know, now, of course, the kind of playbook you use is you know you drill your your formation with your reservoir drilling fluid you you typically pump some sort of solids free fluid down there or or it can have solids in it as long as it's not impeding any uh, any of the sand screens um, and plugging them and and risk mitigation there but before I, I, I read a lot about how they would pump a solids free and then they'd go back and ream that solids free and I you know I know they tried that they saw that the solids free pill which is typically Full of a lot of, uh, you know, it can be damaging if you, especially when you go down and ream yeah, on top no of that. That can, seems a little
1: counterintuitive.
2: Yeah, and I, I think the idea, the concept was, let's try to get all that damage that was laid down by that first filter cake with the solids free in there. And there's some of those things that they tried, um, and uh, you know, it's just it's just kind of interesting seeing how all that evolved over time. so Sure,
1: sure. So, uh, re- regarding the different uh, reservoir drilling fluid concepts, can you uh, describe like? You know, is there water-based mud and oil-based mud, or sort of maybe yeah. some f- like things like flow initiation pressure, different maybe products that are typically used in this type of application? Sure, yeah.
2: So, so the paper itself, um, you know, part of it is that history. Then we get into the, the the kind of the difference in the application versus land and and offshore. And then we've got okay all of this around a, a case history or case study. And the case study was of course with a water-based mud here. So the paper itself talks about the water-based mud, but in terms just conceptually about RDFS and oil-based mud versus water-based of course there's both Um, both of them have different ways they need to of course be ran a lot of it is is the same when you're talking about oil-based mud a lot of the concepts are the same but of course oil-based mud you're you know different phase Um, there's some other other things you have to look out for when you're talking about oil-based mud but a lot of that is um, you know flow initiation pressure as you know it's it's much lower with oil-based mud as we know so oftentimes with oil-based mud as a reservoir drilling fluid a breaker is not always required um and a breaker is not always required with water-based mud either but um, some of those things acid and soluble s- products that we use um you know are are, are meant to be there for um, a, a post acid job basically to, to remove that filter cake right so um yeah the products you know for a water-based mud it's pretty straightforward you've always got to have a viscosifier agent. Um, There's always a fluid loss, typically a starch, which is going to give you a little bit of viscosity, right? Um, And then you're going to have a a bridging agent. Bridging is obviously a big part of this paper. We go into all the bridging concepts, again, an an evolution of that. Um, And then uh, I know, um, of course, the base brine and selecting the correct brine for your water-based mud is is important. Um, So those are kind of the four components that – that go into almost any you know, water based reservoir drilling fluid um, makes sense yeah, and in, and, oil, and the oil based uh, RDFs are are very similar in terms of um, keeping it clean, um, making sure bridging is is optimized for the, for the permeability and porosity that you're dealing with in that particular formation so
1: gotcha <clears throat> so uh, within the paper itself, you mentioned a uh, you talked about the history and, you know, some, some different applications. Um, can you describe uh, sort of going through the study and, and sort of the nuts and bolts of, of sort of the, the things that, you know, beyond that, that you guys discuss, because, I mean, I had a chance to skim through it and I think a lot of it's, it's pretty impressive stuff. And so if you don't mind just sort of brushing over that to, to kind of give a little hint as to what readers can expect.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, a lot of it is, uh, as I mentioned earlier we didn't get a lot of we didn't have a lot of information at hand when we set out to design this fluid um and so that kind of set the stage for okay we know kind of what the basis of this fluid should look like based on experience based on what we know the, the little we do know about what we're doing here so um yeah you know we we, we picked a, a calcium chloride based brine um, we didn't have any formation water we didn't have any crude samples, but we know this was a low, a nine pound fluid. So it wasn't gonna be a, a there wasn't gonna be a lot of calcium in there. That, that base brine wasn't a lot, hmm. um, wasn't very saturated. So um, yeah, that was that was a big part of of the design element. Of course, knowing um, a little bit about the, the permanent porosity that we were up against, we designed a bridging package for that. Um, and, and basically what, you, what we did is we didn't have any core. So we took these aloxide discs, um, that have, you know, supposedly standard set permeabilities and porosities. And then we bridge, we set up our bridging package based on that, did some design process around that to, to make sure that we've got a good bridge there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, and then from there, we're basically dialing in other drilling fluid properties. Um, typical, you know, we want to make sure it's got the right viscosity, right fluid loss. Um, and, and, yeah, so I don't know what else we want to add to that.
0: I mean, I, I think I would, I would just add. So, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of work to come up if you try and run every trap to design a reservoir, drill, and fluid as, as far as all the testing. Um, when you're guessing, you're saying, well, I, I hope I'm right. And based upon what we, the best information we have available, we'll run as many tests as we can close to what we would normally do when we had everything. Um, and then from there, I think you really dive deep into just the operational stuff. Um, and the challenge here is, as Ricky's already gotten into, is you're trained when you talk about formation damage and reservoir drilling fluids and that sort of thing. Your mindset is that this is an expensive operation. Um, and you kind of have to check that at the door for the, a low cost, high volume land application where you have to make compromises that you're told you shouldn't make. Um, and at the same time, say, okay, well, if I understand the cost versus the risks, these are things I would leave out. But there are still some things I wouldn't leave out. Um, and so operationally, Ricky, I think um, you know you've alluded to a, to a couple of those things. But we design our reservoir drilling fluid. We get a little comfortable with the idea that you know we can mix that up at the plant or you know on the rig or wherever we're going to get it out to. Um, what happens when we start drilling? You know operationally, what happens when we get to TD? And, and what are those things you, that you sort of cringe when you read it, putting yeah. together this paper? Tell us about that. Yeah, so,
2: so you know, as you mentioned, you, you're you're working with a fluid typically that a lot of people haven't had a lot of experience with. So when you get out to a rig with it, you know, I've had superintendents, you get your weird, you know, milk-looking fluid out of here. I'm not <laughs> interested in right. all these requirements you're telling me I, I have to have. Um, and, and, you know, some – some people, you know, you deal with that or some people obviously allow you at your show and you run with it. Um, but, yeah, so when you, you know, you start drilling, what's interesting about reservoir drilling fluids, you know, they they kind of have this mystique that they're, they're very um, finicky. But, you know, you get out and you start drilling these wells, you don't have far to go. You don't want to do anything to the mud or change anything. Um, especially, you know, as you start, if you're dumping diluting on land, you're constantly adding fresh fluid to it. So, you know, uh, all the mud engineers I've worked with on these, and especially rig hands, they're really happy because they're not cutting a lot of sacks. They're not doing a lot of work while you're drilling, um, in terms of you know product additions and things like that. Um, of course, there's there's risk mitigation for all kinds of different things that you've got to be prepared for. As with any any you know drilling. Application, So um, you cover all your bases there. But, yeah, so w- as you drill through the formation, you're constantly checking things like acid and soluble solids. Um, again, I mentioned that earlier. A big part is getting your drill solids down, keeping them pretty low. I think the kind of the the uh, the spec that we go for is 2% by volume there on, on acid and soluble solids. We, there's a lot of return permeability testing done that says that that's kind of the limit. Or around there you start getting some pretty bad – formation damage that as we know you can't after acid treatment your drill solids are still there they're not acid soluble so that's one of the the kind of the key things to look for and then as you um as you go approach td you're you're cleaning up the well just as you would previously uh, or, or with a, a normal mud and then um and then yeah and then you get ready to displace out you might make a wiper trip back up and, and come back down make sure you've got a good gauged hole and then you'll pump a solids free at that point and a solids free um uh, you can it can actually be a solids free as i said have some solids in it that are small enough not to plug off your your production screens that you're going to run but essentially that's what it's for it you pump a solids free into the open hole and usually some excess into the casing um and then you you get ready you come out and you run your production screens into the hole and that solids free has quite a few different um few different reasons that we pump it it's it's lubricious or a little more lubricious typically than the fluid you run so when you're sliding that screen in and you're typically highly deviated um, it it goes in much easier Um, it's oftentimes much thicker um, and and typically a little bit more dense to sit on bottom
0: and it's usually viscosified brine just uh, yeah so you call it solids free it's it's typically as romantic as throwing xanthan gum in brine right Um, right but we call it solids free by way of it doesn't have any bridging materials, anything like that. Your filter cakes down, um, and those inherent properties. It's thick, so it helps with fluid loss, as you've mentioned. It offers a little bit of lubricity. Um, you'll spot that part way up inside the casing, uh, and then usually the rest of it has brine. Um, once again, these are really shallow wells, and so <laughs> there's not like a lot of fluid volume. But at the same time, think about moving all this stuff around when. You don't have a lot of fluid volume, but it means you don't have a lot of pits. And sure. fun thing about cleaning pits on a land rig is if you clean them to brine standard, they don't actually seal. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, that can present some challenges. Um... So yeah, you know, with regards to the paper, I mean, w- Ricky, what was your experience, you know, once you got through all of it, um, you know, and Matt signed off on the dotted line, uh, you know, tell us a little bit of, you know, what, what did, did you learn anything through this and, and what were some of the conclusions that you drew, um, after everything that you went through doing this?
2: Yeah. So, um. You know, it, it it was it was really interesting writing this paper. I mean, it was it was myself, of course, Matt, and and our colleague Andrew, um, and we all kind of contributed. Andrew was actually the one out on the rig who who helped out with this on site. So it, it was it was really good getting with everyone. Kind of the the cool part about it is doing all the research, gathering all the literature, going through all those sources, and and kind of reaffirming a lot of what you already knew and then a lot more of what you didn't already know, you know, you hadn't known. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that was interesting. You know, the the conclusions from the paper are um, – the biggest part about it is, you know, we have it in here, reducing horizontal open-hole completions costs favor their utilization and, and low-cost operations, right? And that's the big part of this is that um, – as, those, as the cost of all that, high, that technology kind of came down and was affordable on land, we saw its adaption um, take hold. And, you know, traditionally, um, the, they utilized a lot of these open-hole completion technologies. Um, they required a, a, a balance, a practical balance of risk mitigation and costs. Right. And that's, that's really the concept behind the paper, and, and we highlight that through that case study.
0: Excellent. So, Ricky, I think one other thing, kind of wrapping our head around these big concepts is, is I think, like we've, we've hit on, you get totally committed to these best practices or something that you always do because the cost remediation is so expensive. And in this, the cost remediation is relatively cheap, and the desire to lower costs is very, very high. Um, and so, uh, I guess, could you comment on that with respect to... Uh, the breaker we didn't pump yeah
2: yeah no yeah exactly so you know you're you're kind of trained and and i've always known that you know a breaker is a big part of improving you know reducing the formation damage and you're kind of trained to always you know you want to pump a breaker on these particularly on these water-based muds to remove that that filter cake and um, improve your likelihood of, of increased production so okay here um you know the the actually we had the the customer told us that they've they've done that before on previous wells and actually didn't see a lot of improvement that they were hoping for on those previous acid jobs, so interesting um so you know we we took that in step and decided you know we we won't need to pump a breaker on this. We designed our bridging package as such um and I know you know in some of these areas the permeability is high enough to where you know you can get away without pumping a breaker a lot of that oil flows. And there's enough pressure there to, to kind of peel that breaker off and you can get you can get your production that way. So right. we saw that um, and we we saw that in a lot of their flowback results that they got and, and the feedback from them.
1: Interesting. So without obviously putting hard numbers to it, is it, a, is it marginal with the amount of cost or is that something that the customer was like, no, this is a huge savings. We're not doing it. I mean – Again, not touching on the numbers, but is it significant enough to move the needle?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, so, so these breakers, granted, you would use something relatively inexpensive here, but uh, so a barrel of breaker treatment, granted, you probably only need 10 or 15 barrels for a whole size this small. um, You know, they can run between $300 and $1,200 a barrel. Oh, wow. um, If not more, because you're using a brine for the density, the additives are relatively expensive. Um and then take it a step further that uh you may need a separate hardware configuration in your completion to actually pump it and put it in place. Um and so even if it's a, it has to be available, um, like what's called an anti-swab service tool. Uh there you know, there's there's some ways to poor boy that, but um it's it's a substantial savings to not do it. Um and as Ricky pointed out, it sort of goes back to you know, if I have a Darcy formation and I cause fifty percent damage and I go down to five hundred millidarcies, that's still a heck of a lot of flow. If I have a fifty millidarcy formation and I lose half of it, mm-hmm. that could be a problem. Sure. Um, and so, in this situation with these well, the the sands being so prolific, it was sort of like we we sort of get where you're coming from. We're not we're not going to push too hard on this, especially when you've got these results. Um, but it's one of those where it, it's like, if you've been raised up in this kind of thing, it, it's something that bothers you every, you're like, really? you're just, you're not going to pump a breaker. You're not, <laughs> not going to do even, even just a little bit of enzyme, just a touch of enzyme, you know, like anything. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're satisfied with the results and, uh, you know, done a number of wells. We've done this for a few different folks. Um, and so it's just a, an interesting story.
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, so Kind of going outside the paper, Matt, and even Ricky. I mean, with the way the market is, is do you think there will be more demand? Do you think people are going to be leaning more towards going uh, sort of into the conventional open hole stuff? I mean, obviously it's dependent on commodity prices, but is this something that you you see kind of catching on, or or is it just it's a it's a, it's technology that's there, and I mean it'll be there always kind of thing.
0: I mean, this was just so interesting. I only know of of two or three cases where somebody said, look, there's all these vertical wells, but they couldn't drain everything. Let's kind of zigzag between those wells, drilling a horizontal and get, you know, get the rest. Yeah. So it's a very interesting model um, that, that it just seemed pretty unique and and kind of cool to be a part of. Yeah. Um, I think that you sort of have to take a step back though and, um, you know, try and recognize what what the cost may be relative to the production um You can do this in a number of these tired old fields. I just don't know how much cheaper it is when you've got a really dialed in um you know unconventional well uh there may be savings there, but I think it's all gonna be driven by if I can get the land really cheap sure um and if the land's good for something other than drilling on it um you know, or the mineral royalties aren't as exciting to a farmer who's going to be disrupted. Yeah. Uh, the, you may be, you may be fairly limited. So I think this goes into one of those interesting, there's space for it, you know, potential. It's a tool in the toolbox. Um, and, and uh, you know, the other thing I'll say is, is my impression and, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here was also that, um, they had some fairly unique, uh, tool sizes, as far as they were using rotary steerables and things that it was sort of like they, they were able to get as sort of one-off odd sizes and do some other things where the, the, there were vendors that had this stuff in inventory and so they could do it for really cheap. Yeah. And so I think there's other things that sort of came together that maybe you're right. Like lower prices actually drive this as an opportunity again, because there's low demand, but there's high volume of some th- things sitting around. um, Tough to say, but it obviously was able to compete and be worthwhile in a low-cost environment sure. before. So yeah. um, I think, you know, hoping that shale recovers to some degree, this this may also be a player. Right.
1: No, that's interesting. And and I'm extremely proud to, to be sitting here, you know, with you guys that have the experience, uh, who understand the technology, because uh, I know a lot of folks, you know, within my, Uh, network of friends that are on the mud side really don't have much experience with this. So, you know, as a company, I think we can stand proud knowing that if this is a demand um, that, you know, we've got the experience and, and especially being able to design stuff like that uh, is certainly adds a lot of value to the marketplace. So I appreciate your guys' hard work. And Ricky, if you've yeah. got any closing no, last words I, for everybody.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it, it's unfortunate with the times that we weren't able to, to go forward with the paper and, and present it. I was really looking forward to this one. I think it's it's a really interesting um take on on this subject um and just for those that uh would like to look at the paper you know it's it's available on aade.org um perfect it's um it's there with all of the other three papers that that were that we published this year so awesome um, i hope people can check it out
1: no, that sounds great. And, and for all the listeners out there who've been following along, please, uh, you know, go on to YouTube, check out the tech tips, uh, follow our LinkedIn page where, uh, you know, the team, you guys are putting out a lot of great content, a lot of informative content that, um, you know, it's it, typically it's hard to find unless you're sitting in an office asking for it. So I applaud you guys and uh, I encourage everyone to uh, to add Richard Toomes to LinkedIn. Um, he, again, he's part of the successful team here and we're just trying to continue to grow and continue to help everyone in the mud industry. So, um, with that being said, unless you got a uh, gentleman, have any last words, Matt, what do you think, buddy?
0: Well, I'll add one thing. So you mentioned the reservoir drill and fluids. It is a unique experience, but I think it was, it was sort of funny because I like this project sort of came up right after I'd left, you know, managing global projects doing this. And so it was sort of like, you know, of anything I can bring to the table in at this company, it would be this. Um, <laughs> nice it always reminded me of if you have ever seen Scrubs, where like the dermatologist is always desperate to get attention, and he's the only <laughs> one with money, but he's always like paying everybody to like pretend to need him. And so <laughs> it's like,
1: right, you need me, you need me.
0: Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I feel like that's like reservoir drilling fluid guys. Like when you need them, you really need them, and it feels really good. And every time I was like, stop telling me how to do my job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought that, that that was sort of a funny funny experience and, and, and reference there to, to close. So. Yeah.
1: Awesome. We'll appreciate all the hard work and everyone out there hit us up at the Flowline podcast at aesfluids.com or on LinkedIn.
2: Everyone. Bye for now. Thanks. Take care. Thanks guys.
0: Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.